Shout out to JPP for being our newest Patreon sponsor. If you'd like to support us too, go to patreon.com slash southpawpod. Sandy Hook families like moved like six times. They're like living in like Anne Frank house yeah. basically because of fucking Alex Jones supporters going after them. And you're like, okay, like that's fucking terrifying. That's fucking crazy. Like that you could be the victim of your child could get shot and then right wing people torture you for the rest of your life. Like I would be like, you know, I don't even know how I would react to something like that. It's yeah. insane. This is Sam. This is Paul. This is David. And this is South Paul. So today on the podcast, we have writer, historian, and podcaster, David Parsons, most well-known for the Nostalgia Trap podcast. Hi, David. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. So when I think about Nostalgia Trap, it's more than a podcast to me, but I think of it like a political project. It's, it's nice to hear it described as a political project. I, th- I think that's, that's kind of true. And I think as we move forward, hopefully it'll be more so. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, the podcast is a, is a collection of interviews and interviews with people that uh, have something to say, usually about American history, about politics. We do a lot of like political analysis and kind of like uh, uh, analysis of political economy. But I mean, the basic gist of it is that it's an anti-capitalist show about American history. And we, we have a lot of uh, historians that come in and talk about uh, different elements of American history from from the beginning on. I think my my focus is the Vietnam War because that's what I studied in graduate school. Um, and I think if if there's a political project or or larger kind of purpose to the thing, it was to to kind of take a lot of the ideas and conversations that I had in graduate school um, and continue to have as a teacher with uh, you know all the people I went to graduate school with and are now like working academics and like make them more accessible to the public and make them um, make the academy talk to the public in a, in a more dynamic and engaging way. Um, I, I think that's part of what I noticed coming into the academy. I'm not someone who like was, I, I mean, I became an academic um, coming from a family that didn't really like there aren't, I'm the first. So I didn't really have a kind of base of what academia was. And when I got there, it was just as like, it was more like kind of elite and alienating than any experience I'd ever had. And, and, and as, as more than I expected, actually. And so like, that's been a big part of like, I like this, the like content and the kind of like the idea of studying American history and the, the kind of radical ideas I came in contact with, with all these professors. But I also wanted to kind of bring those things to the, to the public in a, in a different in a different way. Um, the other part of it is just like the, the larger kind of uh, context of me going to graduate school during the, uh, during the big crash. I think I, I think I was like doing my dissertation in 2008 when the, the, the housing market collapsed and like, it just, it, I mean, it honestly just accelerated trends that were already happening in academia, which is the larger kind of collapse of the humanities. Very hard for people with humanities PhDs to get full-time jobs anymore. So that like me and a whole bunch of others, especially historians, because that's my discipline, we are people who are like, I mean, there's like hundreds of us, thousands of us, PhDs without like full-time jobs. And we're just kind of like making it on the market by 
working various teaching jobs and cobbling together a, a kind of economic reality. And that's that's part of the podcast world, too. So there's like um, a, a couple of podcasts that have grown like out of nostalgia trap and are connected to us. But one in particular that I think or two, I, I think in particular that that they kind of are part of what we're doing is working pod with Max Alvarez. He, he, he like kind of talks to working class people and gets their kind of perspectives out there. Um, and then the con contingent magazine uh, and contingent podcast, they're, they're people that, uh, Bill Black and Aaron Bartram were both guests on the show and they're doing like trying to bring history ideas, uh, and, and take like all this like big store of history talent, uh, and smart people and give them something to do with it and pay them for their work and like showcase the like really creative and radical stuff that's happening, uh, among historians. Um, so the nostalgia trap I see is like part of all of that world. And it's a history that's not like talking about Genghis Khan or like <laughs> Alexander the Great, but more, I guess, more recent history and political history. Not just talking about how badass it is to kill a bunch of people. That's but. right. I, I mean, there I won't name the big history podcasts. You can go on iTunes and I think they're still the number one. They're the, the big history podcasts. Um, and God, I, I talk mostly about history film. Uh, I, it's funny. I should talk about more about history podcasts. But you're right. Like a lot of history podcasts, when people hear it. Like a lot of this is kind of change. I want to I want to change the public's perception of what they think when they hear the word history, history, podcast, history, film, whatever. They think a certain kind of exactly what you're thinking. It's going to be like some badass Genghis Khan, like war story, um, you know, and the podcasts that are about history tend to be just kind of like a lot of like detail of, like you know, people that are into Game of Thrones, you know, that kind of stuff. And like, that's popular and cool and whatever. But like, what we're doing with the show is more about kind of like, a, 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 um, I guess that's where where the political project element comes out, because it's like, what we're doing with the show is kind of we want to take the raw ingredients of, of the discipline of history and, um, and use them as the as the kind of like map of, of a kind of uh, how people have fought back against like, tyranny and oppression etc uh, for us like our immediate reality is that you know capitalism is destroying the planet and destroying the people that live on it and american history has a lot to do with that and american history has as lessons you know for for all of us in terms of moving through it and moving forward um I, you know the the name of the show is the nostalgia trap in part because i feel like history is often given to us as a kind of blank nostalgic kind of experience that's like it, the past is the past and that's it and you kind of look at it as a kind of parlor game or something fun to 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 know about or experience like the history buff that knows details about the civil war rifles but instead like we see they we see that as a trap we see like history as us a part of it and us as kind of like the the kind of like living legacy of all the things that have happened um and history's not um not just you know for like putting up a, a poster on the wall of like a, a a moment that happened but instead um a kind of a, a kind of map for us to understand who we are where we are and how to move forward um so i know that's kind of like lofty way of putting it but like history to us is is it, i think part of it is like we think a lot about uh on the show people's lives and like kind of their biography so we think a lot about like kind of the last you know 40 50 years we talked to a lot of people about the 90s a lot on the show and like the the I grew up in the nineties. I was in high school in the nineties. And like that, that era, what is, was very rife with, with like boomer iconography, like the culture of boomers. It still is like the Jimi Hendrix Beatles, like all that stuff is still around Bob Dylan. And like, it felt like there was this like 
in the nineties, it felt like there was, we, I lived in this kind of like dead suburban culture. And then there was this history that happened once of like wild people in the sixties that like once did something, but like, then there's like this kind of like, I don't know, it's, it's weird to live, um, in a moment and kind of look back, be told always that like the real time was the, in the past. And like, I, I just marvel at the fact that we're still living under that kind of like boomer culture. Right. And like that, bo like boomers still run the world. And like we're, <laughs> the last election was like Hillary Clinton boomer versus Donald Trump boomer. And it's like that kind of like Vietnam war experience, all of it seems like it's like some weird, um, some weird nostalgia trap for our culture that we're still like very much stuck in. Um, so that's part of like my, you know, part of my, uh, I, I think maybe distorted look at history is because I study Vietnam War so much, but I see it as just like that era is just a really critical, critical path to today. But nostalgia trap, you're talking about the podcast, but aren't you trying to expand it to be bigger than that, like films or some other media? Yeah, um, I had the experience of over the over the course of the last like five years, my last five years that I lived in New York City. I worked at um, the New York Historical Society on a, a major exhibition for the Vietnam War. And it was like an opportunity to like take all the stuff I knew about the Vietnam War and kind of contribute to the, uh, a, um, a public engagement with this stuff. Because like when you're an academic, like literally like in your graduate school, you're just like fucking writing stuff on your own all the time. I used to just say like that my job was just to stare at a word file by myself all day. Right. So it's like very... Um, I don't know. It's it's really it's really kind of frustrating to sometimes understand that you know that the public isn't being engaged by your work, etc. So like the opportunity to engage publicly is is actually kind of rare, and like museums are one place to do that. But museums come with all the kind of like um, all the kind of like class elements that you know big uh, uh, cultural institutions in New York City come with. So what that meant is we had to create a narrative of the Vietnam War for the public that is like in one room and one giant room and we had four years to do it turn this room into a history of the vietnam war that the public can consume and that like project like taught me a lot because i had to work with a lot of different historians that had different like attitudes about the war etc cetera, etc cetera. but it really part of it made me frustrated because it made me think like god if i didn't have to like if I didn't have to compromise, if I didn't have to like work with everyone else, and if I didn't have to especially kind of answer to the narrative of this kind of like liberal moneyed bourgeois institution, like how could I create a narrative of the Vietnam War? In other words, I couldn't help imagining what would I do with this room if it were just me and the other radical historians I know and not like the, the, the forces of money, essentially. And this is like, you know, connected a little bit to at the same time this was happening, Ken Burns was making his documentary, which is an 18 hour or 18 part documentary. You can watch it on Netflix. I do suggest watching it, but although I also say like, I hate it. Like I hate it because it has such an awful kind of attitude towards the Vietnam War. It treats it as it, it attempts to kind of close it off and say it happened in the past, this horrible thing. We, we all, we all suffered. Let's move on. And that to me is like the opposite of what I want to do with the history of the Vietnam War. I want to examine it, understand how it happened and, and understand how we can like, you know, avoid that happening ever again, because it's awful in a million ways. So anyway, the point is that like I, this experience of like working with people who are doing the Vietnam War, I felt like I know I felt proprietary. I felt like they're taking what I, the lessons of the stuff that I and they're turning it into something really, um, really commercial and really ideological in the sense of erasing the the history 
So that made me think a lot. And when the Ken Burns film came out, um, you know, I had an episode with Christian Appy, who is one of my mentors. He's like a, um, an incredible historian of the Vietnam War. Um, and he does, you know, a really kind of, I think, a, 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 he's like, you know, part of a younger generation of historians who are telling a much more radical story of what happened in the Vietnam War. And his books are Working Class War, Patriots, um, and his latest book is American Reckoning. But he he came on the show and we talked about the Ken Burns thing. And we like unpacked it and we're like what's wrong with this thing why is it like this and why is this you know million like a hundred million dollars they spent on this thing they spent like nine years making it i mean it was just a tremendous project and this is like the quote-unquote official history and it's just like it's just wrong in so many ways and it's not necessarily factually wrong it's just what it emphasizes what it what it, it the narrative it wants to show and it's kind of like sense of we all feel sad and we're all moving on um really really offended us as his as like kind of younger historians of the vietnam war so nostalgia trap uh, film to get to you to the long way of answering your question we want to this summer we're trying to make films and we want to start um making a series of short films about specific characters in american history and see what we can do to kind of intervene on the content and form of history filmmaking and see if we can like beat Ken Burns in his own game, you know, and create something that like engages the public in a much more, um, in a, in a much more radical way and a much more compelling way. So it's like, um, you know, it's a, it's an art aesthetic project, but it's also a political one. It seems like that mindset, there was that book, the end of history, but that mindset existed already, right? Nostalgia trap. Here's the sad part of history, but now it's done. End of history. Now we figured it out. Obama, we're done, right? Like right. liberals think, Whatever Trump does, that's bad. Let's roll it all back to wherever we were yes. with Obama, yes. and then we're done. It's weird that historians also take that motif when they're presenting history, whether it's through film or books. At the end of it, like you said, factually, it's not wrong, but the attitude is we're done. Yes. And now we never have to do this kind of stuff again. And you're saying we're not done. We're probably going to do a lot more of this kind of stuff. So here's a roadmap how not to get there again and maybe learn some lessons from here. Well, a perfect example, dude, is like one of the one of the final sequences of of uh, Ken Burns film where I was like, are you fucking kidding me? It was um, it was like kind of a montage sequence of like the anti-war movement and like wrenching scenes of war and stuff. And they played Bob Dylan. Of course, once again, you got to go to like the boomer legends. So it's Bob Dylan and he's singing the song um, that goes like it ain't no use to sit and wonder why. Uh, um, it's basically, you know, the song is like saying like, and I thought that that would be like the, a, a great like phrase that like wraps up the entire Ken Burns thing is there ain't no use to sit and wonder why, like, let's just move on. And to me, I'm like, I'm exactly the opposite. I'm like, there is great <laughs> use in wondering why and asking why this happened, because the why is uh, the why is capitalism and imperialism and racism. And those things are still operative in huge ways. So it is like, to, to ask why is like the critical question of the Vietnam War and our time. And it's just absurd to me to put that kind of closure on it. It's like a documentary where uh, Daniel Stern from The Wonder Years is narrating it. And it's kind of like that kind of attitude. Yes. I watched it and I didn't like it either. But I, I like the fact that I learned a bunch of stuff. Totally. Like if I broke it down and just turn it into bullet points, whatever bullet points I wrote, I probably like that. Like I know this now. I know that now. But. It's a film. So there's a narrative. So you're learning a lot of things thematically. And it was that Wonder Years, Daniel Stern kind of like kind of attitude like, uh, yeah, totally. 
Um, and and that and that is um, it's it felt like the the movie was for boomers. You know what I mean? It's 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 for that generation to sit and be like, look, like in, in other words, it wasn't meant. It, there's it's like, what are young people supposed to get from this? That like old older folks went through something horrible, and that's that. There's no like why. There's no like kind of how is it connected to us? How, there, there's very little actually, which I found amazing that uh, connecting vietnam to the politics of the 80s and the 90s and today it was crazy to me yeah uh, um the film missed huge opportunities for sure and that's part of what i want to fill in is like how can we like and I, i'm not going to make a vietnam war film but i'm like i you know it just it, for me like it just speaks to a larger because ken burns is just so dominant i mean i think there's a button on like photoshop or whatever that like is like the ken burns button you know what i mean you press it and it like moves forward slowly zooms in slowly <laughs> right and like there's a certain effect right like he created he created a language for through which like most Americans think that's what history looks like is this kind of like soft focus. You know, we, we gently push in with a zoom and we have someone talking. That's like, you know, a primary source, like a voice from the era, you know, with some like accent. We've actually been like, we've done a few parodies of it on the show, but it's like the, the, the idea that like, this is how history is presented. And, and you're right. It's not necessarily content. It's tone, right? There's a tonal thing that's, that that's to me like just oh, I cringe when I see that stuff. And my, you know, I show this stuff, and part of this is like frustration of being a history teacher. I've taught history um, in in at the you know in colleges for like 14 years or something like that, and like I use a lot of film, and it's it's hard. I go back to the same ones always because there were like only a few good ones. Like the a lot of those films like really just bore the students to tears and like they don't really get all that much from it and like some of them are like i don't know some of the older burns films are just they're ideologically just rotten absolutely and what they're in what they're presenting like um i don't know the rick the oh, just one example the rick burns like this is brother <laughs> rick burns there's a new york documentary it's all about new york city history of new york city and like they have historians on there that are like that just talk about how immigrants came to New York City and were just inspired by the sight of New York. And like, they're making these comments. It's like, how can you say, quote unquote, immigrants were inspired? Like, what are you talking about? What immigrants? Who? All of them? Every single immigrant came to New York and was inspired? Like, how do you know that? And it's just like things like that, where these kind of layer in this shit that's like meant to reinforce some sort of positive ideology about American, you know, the American story when it's like just, yeah, absurd to me and bad history too. With that happy music in the background, right? Whenever they, they'll have a, a mm -hmm. narrator or historian yeah. narrating a scene about how happy these immigrants are uh -huh. and they'll show you old photos of that time and they'll play like happy ragtime music or something. Yeah. And they'll, they'll even acknowledge like, despite their hard lives, yeah. you know, they were, they were happy. Like all that stuff is like really chilling to me because it feels like, God, this is like the shit, like this is literally like the same kind of thing you would have heard from the ruling class when they were talking about these people like 200 years ago. Right. Like the same kind of thing They would have been like, Oh, they, the, they go through hardships, but they live a, they dance and they have like a culture. And like, it, it means we haven't progressed very far from like that very old-fashioned way of looking at what history is would you say with your content whether it's nostalgia trap or maybe future books that you're trying to cater it more for younger generations than boomers or even people your own age like people younger than you because that's what we try to do with our podcast like people say oh you have a podcast sam i want to listen to it i'm like 
you probably won't like it. It's not for you. <laughs> I, we, we call it a Gen Z podcast, even though... Who's Gen Z? Yeah, what's Gen Z? Is that like people that are like 20? Born after 2001. Shit. You know that YouTube algorithm where you see the first video, but you don't go down the rabbit hole yet? <laughs> yes, yeah. We want to catch them. Yeah, okay, before they go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you're like Gen X... You've already gone down that rabbit hole. <laughs> Dude, honestly, I didn't think about any of this stuff when I started the podcast. I started a podcast like mainly because I just wanted to record like voices of people that I thought were smart. And like I thought I'll put them up here. Maybe other people I went to graduate school will listen to it and we'll see where it goes. And like the first podcast was called something else. It was called Topical Fever. So stupid. But like there was like we, we tried to do topics and news stuff. And then at some point, like the like podcast world just exploded like i feel like it's like um we're in a boom in the same way that like there was a stand-up comedy boom like 10 years ago you would have said like oh don't even try stand-up comedy no everybody's doing it but like nobody does it anymore like it kind of popped but like and maybe that'll happen with podcasts i think that like a lot of the like it'll weed out the good ones etc but like i was not thinking about an audience and now i am and and i think you're right there are a lot more young people listening to the show I've, I've thought more about like you know it I think about topics. I think about kind of not trying. I don't want to fit into any particular ideological bubble of the left. I try to do like kind of a pan left thing because there's like, you know, there's a history to like camps in the left. You know what I mean? And like camps, whether they be, you know, like different organizations, different around different cults of personality, around different podcasts, even I guess now. And like that part is tricky to navigate. I just want to like, I want the show to be useful. I want people to like listen to it, enjoy it, talk about the stuff that comes from it um, and engage with the ideas like that. That that for me is what I want to build with the show. Um, I don't have an overarching like business vision for how to build it. But I think you're right in the sense that I do aim more and more at younger people because, you know, I don't know that I want them that I want them to understand. Like, I, I feel like it's weird because we live in I, I grew up without the internet in a way, right? I'm not Gen Z. I'm I'm 40 years old. So I was like, I was like in the, in the 90s, I was like, in high school, and all my like, really coming of age happened without social media or internet at all. And it's weird, because I want to kind of give that, like, to back to young people, because young people like their whole coming of age is social media. And I've talked to a lot of students, you know, in my classes who are 18, 19, 20, 21, and they are all kind of longing for something. They want like something. They're confused by the world. In other words, we had this vision that the internet was going to like, everyone will be so smart now because we'll all have all this information. But instead, it's created this like total fucking chaos. Um, it's even created like probably unleashed, like really at this point, ugly shit around like fascism and racism. And so like there are a lot of avenues for young people to wind up in. I mean, we know now there are articles like that are like tracing radicalization of people online that's happening where young people are like literally falling into that rabbit hole you're talking about and ended up doing like mass shootings and shit like that so it's just like we live in a fucking like really weird media landscape and i you know i I don't think the 90s landscape was any less weird it just didn't have the internet and i want to kind of like i don't know i want to be that bridge i I think bridging generations is cool i like that idea it's part of like the nostalgia trap thing instead of thinking of like generations as separate it's just like all one thing and um, so young people, especially, I think are looking for, and I think they're, uh, you know, more, some more than others are looking for some place they can go. That's like more of a stable kind of source of not necessarily information, but like that tonal thing, you know, it's like pretty uniform out there. Like, it's weird because it's like, 
they, you know, as much as diffuse as the culture got from social media and the internet, it feels like it's more like a mono culture than ever before. And that part of it is really weird. When you teach students that are coming in, what is their level of history that you have to start from? What's their base? Oh, God, that's a that's a good question. Um, it, it dep- Well, first of all, I teach at different schools. So that depends on what school I'm at. Um, you know, I would say the uniform is that I mean, the, the most common experience is that most students don't have much knowledge of American history at all. And I'm like, this is something that I learned um, working at the museum on the exhibition. We had an education component and the education component was like we were creating material to be sent to public schools all across the country, high schools, colleges, even middle schools, because middle schools do Vietnam. They do the Vietnam War in middle school. They don't do it in elementary. Um and what I learned is that they like we had all these high school teachers come and talk to us and everything like that. And they said, like, we don't get to the Vietnam War. So in other words, like there if they get to it, there are two days in, in the like current federal government public curriculum. There are two days, two single days that uh, Vietnam War curriculum is supposed to be shared to high school students in America. And most uh, teachers don't get to it. And if they do, they don't really know how to teach it because it's like and that's not their fault. Like the Vietnam War is like incredibly complicated and it's hard to like kind of create a narrative that's digestible for students in a day or two. So the basic answer is that in terms of the Vietnam War, just that history, which I see is like incredibly important to understand everything that's happening today. Students get zero as they graduate from high school. Now, uh, if I have, you know, college seniors, they might have taken some college history classes and gotten some more. But like I teach at a military base, too, dude. And like those military, those those are active duty GIs and um, they're uh, active duty military people. They are all high school graduates. So they're they're basically they have no history in terms of like they have very little history um, in terms of when they start the class. Yeah. Not to overly complicate things. Yeah. But what are the biggest misconceptions that people have about the Vietnam War? Most people know, most young people know that like the Vietnam War was bad and that America was wrong, right? They have like some sort of like kind of very, very almost snarky, ironic, like that's something new actually is this like snarky, ironic, like kind of skepticism about America's role in the world. And that's like a total product of like they grew up after the Iraq war. You know what I mean? Like they grew up with this kind of like knowledge. That was like from like team, like, I don't know, South Park, Team America, shit like that, that like kind of reinforces cultural idea that like, so like, that's very different from like older people who have a very, like many of them like have much more knowledge about the war and much more like, you know, kind of ideological ideas about the war. Most students, again, they they very, the young ones, they know very little about it. And if they do know about it, they know that it was wrong. They know it was bad, Um, but they don't really get like, I don't know structurally how the war were connect, connected to american capitalism um and and what the experience of the war like they don't get the draft part of it like that part of it is intense like this is something that like a lot of people like still don't know they didn't even come up in ken burns thing once i have a, I, a friend david zeiger filmmaker he's making a film i think his next film is about um, high school students during the Vietnam War and how they resisted and the anti-war movement in American high schools. So you think of an anti-war movement in Vietnam era, it's like college kids, some of the radicals or something like that, older people. But he's going to make the case that like it, high schoolers were like more active against the war than any other group. We're like, well, why is that? Well, it's because they were 16, 17 years old. And if you were a male 
if you were a boy, 16 or 17 years old in American high school in the late 60s, uh, throughout the 1960s, you would have thought, if I don't go to college, I'm going to die. Like, if I don't go to college or find a way to deal with the military service that's going to be asked of me or demanded of me at 18, I'm going to die. Because it's literally, I tell my students, like, the draft was getting a, an induction letter. You got a letter that said, you're to, you're to report to this place in two weeks. And if you don't, you go to jail, right? Like, actually, 150,000 people chose to go to prison. Like, more, actually, 150,000 served prison, but many more resisted the draft. But either way, the point is that, like, I think that's one of the biggest, like, the biggest gaps generationally of understanding, like, what that was like. Because, I mean, I didn't go through that. I lived in the 90s. It was, like, well, after, it, I wasn't demand, that wasn't demanded of me. But, like, I think that's hard for people to wrap their minds around. And I asked them, like, okay, if not Donald Trump said the draft is back, you're going to Syria tomorrow, what would you do? And that, they are not ready to even come close to um, coming to terms with what, what that would mean to them and how they would respond. I'm like, would you take, would you go? Would you get on the uniform and go to the induction center and shave your head and get on a plane and go to the Middle East and fight? Would you, you know, resist and go to jail? Would you flee to another country? And they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I'm looking at my phone playing with some fucking Instagram app right now. I'm not even thinking about, you know, that. And I think that's maybe the biggest gap for young people is like the gap between, um, especially the ones I encounter, um, because they're all college students is that they, they don't have, um, military service as, as seen as like something that they're going to connect with. And that there, that, that is an actual, like real possibility for their lives. Now, if you go down the, um, economic ladder and you teach at community colleges, that's not true, right? The students are veterans. Many of them are veterans. Many of them are in, in the military, etc. So like, that's another part of this is like a, you know, class consciousness and the students that are, separated from military service are the ones most likely to be, you know, kind of more um, within the upper classes or middle classes, at least. Um, military service is more, I think that that's the, the, the kind of base fact I'm getting to is that military service is more concentrated in the working class than ever before in American history, and certainly in our era. And so like the Vietnam War, you know, as much as privileged people and the ruling class, whatever, were able to get out of it by going to college, getting deferment letters, et cetera, et cetera, bone spur letters from Trump <laughs> famously. Um, the, the, the reality is more middle class people. There was more of a diverse kind of class thing in the army that fought the Vietnam War than any other war in, in American history um, because of that draft. Um, and now like this ending the draft has resulted in this kind of like real working class concentration and a real kind of separation. So like, that's a bigger answer to your question, but it's a big, I think it's a big gap in understanding um, between like younger generation, and older generation about, about Vietnam. How did you become a historian and how did you come upon these views? Um, going and getting a PhD in history, like as when I was already kind of a radical, like just, I guess, complicated things and like made me think more about different angles on it, you know, and like see different kind of, um, elements of the bigger narrative. So, I, yeah, I mean, I was radicalized by my experience of going to the CUNY Graduate Center between what I got there in like 2004. I was there between like 2004 and 2012, something like that. And like during the Obama years, essentially. And I think that that was a big deal because it wasn't really so much the professors. It was like other students that I was like engaged with that we were talking. And I mean, there were some professors that definitely like blew my mind. But either way, the idea that like there was a really liberal, progressive, 
black president that everyone was excited about at a time when I was studying like capitalism and like the history of capitalism and like discovering like more kind of like radical notions of American history. I think that was important because it like it like disabused like we were just like we were just like I mean, we were just dunk on Obama all day in graduate school. Like all we did is like kind of destroy like for me, it was like kind of like recognizing that Obama was why, why he was such like a problematic president and why he was such a troubling figure was the radicalization of, grad, of, of, of at least the graduate school part of it. But like, dude, I like went to UC Santa Barbara. I was a film studies major. I wanted to like be what like Quentin Tarantino, basically. Right. I like wanted to go be in Hollywood and be a filmmaker. Like that's what I wanted to do. At that point, were you just more like left leaning or more liberal? Liberal. I would describe myself as liberal. I didn't. I yeah. I, I don't think I even knew there was a left really, or even really understood what it was. Um. And 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 you know, I, it comes in pieces, and I think these stories often are distorted. But to say like a couple like landmarks in it, like I was out of college working in L.A. I was like doing like PA stuff, like production assistant stuff for um. Uh, I was working at Universal Studios at like a NBC sitcoms. It was like really depressing, shitty work. Um, I hated it and like hated the um, the whole kind of Hollywood kind of industry. Like I was just like, is this really what I want to do? Like, I'm never going to be a director. Like I'm going to be basically getting people coffee all my life. Like this is a joke. Like making as a director seems impossible. And I just didn't know how to do it. I was just like kind of really naive. Um, and so anyway, 9-11 happened when all of them, when that was happening, that was 2001, 9-11 happened. And it like kind of totally, it, 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 I was already in crisis about what I'm doing with my life. And it just made it even more. So I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I'm living through like the dramatic times, like really. And I don't even understand it. Like, I don't even know why that happened. So I, um, I remember that like the LA times was running a lot of series at the time on like, Palestine and Israel. I started reading about Palestine and Israel. I'm like, holy shit. Like, why am I? I felt dumb. I thought I was really smart. I was like, I have a college degree. I'm going to go down to Hollywood and be a director. And it was just a moment for me to realize how dumb I was. And like, I started educating myself, started like reading. Someone gave me Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States, which like is like kind of like the book. After you graduated yeah. from college. Oh, yeah. After I graduated college. That's like the book that that's the left pill book. That's literally the left pill is like, here's Howard Zinn. I went to high school in Portland, Oregon. They assigned you that book. <laughs> yeah, well, that's well, I, and I now ha in the years since I teach that book, you know, and I don't teach it as like, this is the right history. I teach it as like, this is a way of looking at history, right? This is like one way of looking at things. Um, and so anyway, Zen, I didn't, re you know, I didn't know that Zen was like the socialist dude. I didn't know like his whole history, but that book blew my mind and like really just in the way that everybody else says about that book, right? Like there are things in there that like, I just felt like I'm dumb i've been lied to <laughs> i didn't realize how fucking racist this country was i didn't realize like how how primary race was to the whole story i didn't re recognize how like it's it's like the haves and have nots and it's always been that way and they fucking rule everything and like i just i don't know it connected a lot of things and it made me it made me realize that like i loved history i actually was a history major in um my undergrad years but i gave it up and went to study films i thought history was boring which is so amazing to me because like now I became a PhD in history because like it was Howard Zinn's book that like made me recognize, no, history is not boring. It's just presented in a boring way. And we need to like find a way to like make show people how fucking insane our story is and that you're a part of it and you can be a part of it. And you're one of these people, just like all these others. Um, and then it's not just some, you know, nostalgia trap in the past. It's like some real shit. So Howard Zinn and then, you know, 
Noam Chomsky. I mean, I, I, I discovered these, I discovered the big people, you know, but I think for me, the key moment or the key kind of ingredient that got thrown in the mix is that I, you know, I got into Noam Chomsky. I got into Howard Zinn, uh, but then someone slipped me a cassette. This is how long it was ago. A, an audio cassette of a Terrence McKenna lecture, <laughs> um, which was called, um, it just said like handwritten on the tape. It just said linear societies and nonlinear drugs. And I was like, what? It, like, I didn't, I didn't even have the context to understand what this is. And I listened to the tape and I, and like, it just really, I, I, I for me, I like, didn't even know what the guy was talking about, but I wanted to hear it was something compelling about his voice. And anyone who's listened to Terrence McKenna knows there's something compelling about his voice. Um, and so I got drawn into McKenna and then, you know, that drew me into, um, you know, the, the world of like, you know, psychedelics and thinking about drugs and thinking about counterculture. And if my friend Jeff Johnson were here, you know, he was one of the guys I went to graduate school with. The first day of graduate school, we were in a conference room, not unlike the one we're in right now. And like we were the, 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 I didn't even know what graduate school was. I'd never been there, but I got into this PhD program somehow. And the historian at the front of the room says, okay, we're going to go around the room. And everyone talk about what your project's going to be. Like, what are you going to do in graduate school? And I was like, Oh my God. Like I was supposed to fucking think of something. I had no idea. I knew that I wanted to study the sixties. I knew, I knew that I was kind of into Vietnam generally. So I just like blurred it out. Like when they got to me, I said, I want to study the influence of LSD on like the <laughs> anti-war movement of the 1960s and how politics and drugs like came together. And people like reacted to that. They were like, Oh, that's like really cool whatever. But I didn't know what I was talking about. And I like had so much shit to read. I had so much. And I, that ended up being the direction for a while is just like studying counterculture, 50s, 60s stuff. And, you know, I think I'm more and more at moving forward with the nostalgia trap, interested in, in kind of bridging those worlds of like psychedelia, counterculture, drugs, like kind of stoner world and um, and the kind of larger and left project and how those things intersect. That to me is interesting because you know, that was the 60s split, like the 60s split was between what, like, the counterculture and the kind of serious radical political people. Um, and I think that that bridging those things could be an effective way of moving forward. So that's part of that's part of the biography. I want to get more into the psychedelic aspect of it. But before we go into there, you said the way you present history and information, you don't want to go into any left camps or like, you know, put your stuff down and say, I belong to this camp, but you do differentiate between liberal and left. And I oh, think yeah. especially for younger listeners, they hear that a lot and people just gloss over it, assuming everybody knows what that already means. And I don't think people do. And I've talked to a lot of young people. We talk to them on uh, discord and Facebook and they're like, yeah, neoliberal, liberal, uh, left, like they, they don't know what that means. So how would you define the difference between liberal and left? Uh, uh, it's uh, That's a really good question. And I think that's uh, that's something that we should definitely like the more that you saying that I'm like, God, that seems like such a straightforward thing to do. Like and, and that's that's a service for young people because that. So I'm naming I'm I'm name dropping all my graduate school <laughs> friends, but Carl Linskook, who's, who's written a really great book um, about uh about uh prisons uh for haitian immigrants in miami but he uh he, he when we we're in graduate school i remember it was like the first like couple weeks we were walking on 34th street you know um heading back to the subway and we were talking about politics smoking cigarettes very excited about everything that's going on and he just like all of a sudden like in the middle of one of his rants he's like well you know i'm obviously i'm not a fucking liberal yeah i'm, a, I'm not a liberal i'm like a leftist and i was like wait 
I like, I, I like, I, I wanted to stop. Like, it was another one of those moments where I was like, I feel naive. Like, should I say something? I ask him, what does he mean? Because he was like, I'm not a liberal. And at that point, I had thought, like, well, that's what I am. Like, I'm a liberal. I think maybe George W. Bush was president the second at that moment. Um, yeah, I think maybe that's that's true. Yeah, definitely. Um, but either way, it was kind of like, uh, uh, you know, liberals were the good guys during the George W. Bush years, right? And it was like liberals are the ones that are fighting. They're the ones that understand that racism is bad. Liberals are the ones that understand that like being gay is okay. They're the ones that like they're the good guys of history. Um, but I think that, you know, for me, it's realizing that liberals are, 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 are capitalists and our liberals are, are, are invested in keeping the status quo going. And neoliberals are kind of like this new version of liberals who are even more like hyper capitalist vi- versions of liberals. So like, I, I think that it's for us is seeing liberalism and the kind of like, whatever you call liberal is kind of like the mainstream in a lot of ways of American politics. And it's been completely ineffective in standing up to the forces that are ruining people's lives. And I think that that's become more and more clear in our lifetime, right? Um, that the, the, the Obama years were damaging, I think, extremely damaging to like the like ideas about liberalism and young people's faith in them. So like my answer to young people would be like, you know, liberal is Obama, essentially. Neoliberal is Obama. Um, and, and left is uh, people who want to envision you know, it's a left is a big historical project, but it's people who want to envision moving beyond capitalism um, and various ways of doing that and various ways of imagining that, imagining a world that is uh, that is, is moving beyond capitalism. So, you know, when I say left camps, I mean, all the people that are basically know what capitalism is um, and 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 understand why it needs to either be changed radically or completely dumped so you can go that's what's fun about the left is you can go further you can go far far into it we have like right now in terms of camps you have the dsa right in brooklyn democratic socialists of america um they're building on the uh, traditions of a guy named michael harrington who was uh an organizer in the 1950s and 1960s a socialist who who you know had this vision of democratic socialism where it's like they just you know they want um, much more democratic control of the economy. So like they're like they're capitalists basically, but they 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 want a much much more radical kind of democratic engagement. That's great, awesome. But there's projects that go a lot further than that and say that that's that's inadequate. And actually, we need to you know totally disrupt capitalism. We need to and then you know you go all the way to communism where we're like we need to like arrest the capitalists, put them in prison or murder them, and create a new society. Um, so you know there's so many different like camps. And that's what I'm talking about, why the left gets com- complicated. I think, you know, you can spend a life on the left thinking about it. For me, on the nostalgia trap, I, I you know, I want to kind of bring people from the liberal side to the left. But I also want to kind of like talk to the left and the people that are already here, that are already like engaged in the project of anti-capitalism, whatever that means. I mean, if there's if there's one thing I got like that, I think I love about Terrence McKenna is he's always says like he's always talking about how like. Uh, if anyone like tells you that they know what's going on, they're like wrong. Like nobody knows what's going on. Like we're all engaged in like a mystery, you know, and we're all moving forward. And like that part of it has stuck with me in terms of like, you know, I'm not an agnostic. I'm not like a, a person that steps back and it's just like whatever happens, happens. Um, you know, I do think we can direct history in some ways, but I also think you can get into a really hubristic, egotistical project as we see of like people thinking this is the path and this is the only path, um, which is. Uh, it seems like a, a recipe for 
um, for disaster always. Yeah. You've talked about anti-capitalism. How would you define that? Or what's wrong with capitalism? Oh, God, Jesus. What's, what, <laughs> should we break out the Michael Moore movies? Um, yeah, like, well, I mean, capitalism to me, it's like, the, it, it, it just, it, another Terrence McKenna thing. He's like, why, why do I hate capitalism? He says, because it's stupid. Because it's, and, and I, love, I love that. It's like Karl Marx has a whole book, but like Terrence McKenna says, it's stupid. But what he really says is like, it's like, it sets people apart from each other and sets people against each other in like a in a competition, you know, um, and, and what it does is like it organizes our society along, you know, we've seen what capitalism has done. It organizes society along class lines that are more and more concentrated. Um, so the result is like for me, like capitalism, like the fact that you work all day uh, and you take home just a tiny paycheck. While, you know, the people who run the business, the, 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 like the, the wealth flows up that, to me, that's just not justice to me. Like, okay, as human beings, we're going to do a project. We're going to build a road. We're going to build a building. Thousands of us are going to come together and like give our lives and our blood and our sweat and tears to create this. And like five guys are going to profit from it. Like that just seems stupid, first of all. <laughs> um, and just like. You know, it's using um, it's using all the kind of all, all those lives and souls that are lost to capitalism are lives that have been spent working uh, for projects that they never benefit from. Um, I just don't I just don't buy the argument that capitalism um, is the best way to organize a society, because what it does is it is it creates, you know, a, just a massive um, it creates poverty and it creates a massive working class of people that are never going to achieve anything beyond basic survival and many people who will not even achieve that. So it's like, I don't think there's a whole lot of, I mean, there are, I mean, obviously there are a ton of people out there that argue that capitalism is like the only, but it's uh, the only way to, to kind of organize a society. But to me, like there aren't, there aren't a lot of convincing arguments for that. Um, we, at this point, it's kind of like, I don't know. This goes back like this goes gets away from my 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 personality as an academic. This goes back to like me like sitting on the beach in Southern California late at night, like smoking weed with my friends, looking out at the oil rigs and having <laughs> conversations where we're like, dude, like did you like there were like Native Americans here in canoes? You know what I mean? Like like not that long ago. And now there's oil rigs out there and we can't touch the o the water because the ocean is like so polluted. How did that happen? How could that how could that ocean be or that river be pristine for millions or of years, you know, and, and then like within two, three, four hundred years, they're completely destroyed. Like the environmental element of it, apart from the human element, like the environmental element to it uh, of, of what capitalism has done is just so fucking devastating and such a key way to understand. I mean, I, that's something that people don't get unless they're like out in it. Like go out into the hinterlands, drive anywhere outside of any major city and see what the like rot of capitalism has done to this country. It's fucking crazy. Like it's just an industrial wasteland. There's smog in the middle of the desert now. And like that to me is just that's that's like that's pretty heavy, dude. <laughs> they call it capitalist realism, right? You just can't imagine a different yeah. conception of the world. So their idea would be, yeah, we caused that problem, but we'll fix it. too. Right, right. Elon Musk is going to invent something. Yeah, capitalism is good because we've cured all these diseases. 
that capitalism has created, right? Uh, don't get me started, dude, because like, they cured the diseases with like what, what big pharma is selling that shit to like people that, you know, it's it's like they didn't cure it to like uh, for like benevolent reasons. They didn't yeah. cure those diseases. And whose diseases are they curing? You know what I mean? Like there there's like so many stories of, of big pharmaceutical companies creating medicines that would like eradicate easily eradicable eradicable diseases in Africa. And they just don't do it because it's not profitable. Right. And there's a million stories like that. So like capitalism as some sort of having some sort of humanistic element to it that's going to like save the world by finding curing diseases no fuck that like they, they they steal all the like most of what big pharma like all their like developments are just basically like synthetic like uh, uh duplicates of um you know plant knowledge that's been indigenous wisdom for like tens of thousands of years so like they go down they like i think 80 percent of like the medicine that big pharma sells is really literally just like bad like bad duplicates of uh uh or bad analogs of 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 plant medicine that's been known to you know solve these problems before so we had a guest yeah. who talked about that yeah we were talking about biopiracy where they go in uh, yeah. steal the traditional knowledge and then make all this money off of it creating medicine or even like skincare products or whatever and then give them nothing because a lot of times they don't understand why we should hide this information so traditional people indigenous people will share this knowledge with you and then they corporatize it and then they create a company and they make all the money and give them nothing that's how imperialism works right they like um they just they like suck every bit of authenticity and knowledge from poor people and then sell it to rich people i mean that's that's been going on for hundreds of years right is like that's the project and like that part of it that part of it is disturbing too to me like it, it connect and, and like to connect that to capitalism and healthcare, like like just medicine like we, we talk about all the time like there are how many GoFundMe's have you seen that are like the most tragic shit you've ever seen? Like going into the GoFundMe medical world, like go down that rabbit hole and look at like, I wish that instead of the fucking rabbit hole that's on the side of the fucking, you know, Rogan video or whatever that tells you like to go down the fucking intellectual dark web for young people. I wish the rabbit hole was fucking go into the GoFundMe medical world where you, you learn all these people. And it's not like 10 people. It's fucking thousands of people who are begging for money on GoFundMe because they need to pay medical bills to save the, their own lives, the lives of their children, etc. And there's, I mean, I've read ones that are like, please save my daughter's life. And it's like their goal is like $15,000 and they have like a hundred bucks and they've been on and it's been up for a month and you want to fucking cry reading that shit. And that the effect of that stuff, you talk about like Howard Zinn, like oral history. You know what I mean? The oral history of the 30,000 people in America that die every year because they can't afford their medicine or can't afford healthcare. Like that to me, it's just like, it's a fucking joke. This country is a fucking joke when I hear shit like that. Like capitalism saves people's lives or develops medicine. Fuck you, dude. <laughs> it, like it kills people. That's what capitalism does. And like, so like that part of it is like, you know, the GoFundMe stuff and that kind of bleak element of like, you know, uh, of healthcare is just one element of, uh, of pointing out how capitalism, you know, gets in the way of us, you know, creating a world that's much more equitable, that's much more enjoyable, um, that's much more just fair, you know, and doesn't do this awful shit to people. Do you have any theories about the best way to reach liberals and get them more onto this leftist kind of counterculture, counter-establishment way of thinking? Because it seems like a lot of people have different ideas and different theories there's no one uniform theory yeah. 
Yeah, I, I and I think that's what's exciting about the about what's ha- whatever's happening in like the podcast world, the left and everything else. And I think and I think that you know there are other groups that are starting to take this into video and starting to basically we have to do what the fucking right does. You know what I mean? I mean that's the re- that's the, re- the 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 real kind of fact of this is that the right is beating us at the media game um, by kind of like they're playing against the liberal mainstream, right? And this is why we're well positioned to do this because it's like they're saying, hey, you know how like all like you look at Obama and like Hillary Clinton and all that shit and it fucking sucks. And like they're kind of liars and they're like they say that they're going to like do good shit, but they don't do anything. And your fucking paycheck keeps going down and the life still sucks in America. Hey, you know, there's another story going on here. And and that's very powerful. Right. So like the right says the other story is, you know, that there's like these fucking liberals that kind of troll everything and Marxists in class and all this bullshit. It's a bullshit narrative. Um, but there is a narrative that's like true. That's like, no, actually, you know how you say it? those liberals are fucking liars and pieces of shit. Yeah, you're right. It's because they're capitalists and it's because it's because like they are, they are the wall of the ruling class. They are the kind of face that like makes this whole thing work. And to kind of like, I don't know, there's all this kind of kind of, you know, the internet brought out this conspiracy shit in a lot of ways. You know, it was already there in American life. I mean, people have been writing about conspiracy stuff for a very long time. The JFK thing was, when I was a kid, that's all we talked about. It was like JFK, UFOs, X-Files. There's always this like un- counter narrative underneath. Well, like, you know, that's a counter narrative we can give them. The counter narrative is that like there's a left and like uh, that there is a left in America. And like that's part of, I think. Um, the sixties is one of the moments where, you know, for all its imperfections and all the fucking wild shit that happened in the politics of the sixties, the left was visible. And that's why I'm always trying to like, the other day I tweeted out like, where are our Angela Davises? And people were like, Angela Davis is still alive. And I'm like, well, no, I'm saying like, where is our, like, kind of, where is our kind of like figures of, cause I mean, my book is about GI coffee houses. So my book is about like these coffee house institutions that were created um, outside of military bases during the late 60s and 70s that were meant to like create spaces where people could see the left and be like, go in there, um, get underground newspapers, talk to people that are doing organizing. Like the left needs to be more visible. I tend to think that the left needs to have more physical spaces. I'm all about the body. Like this show, I thought we were going to talk about fighting. You guys, you guys about <laughs> fight about either way. Like, But the body is important and you guys recognize that, right? That like there's a, there's a physical element to like politics and we got to have spaces where that's happening because like all the spaces are neoliberal corporate spaces, Starbucks, all these places fucking suck. They're dead. So it's like, how do we create that element of it too? But you know, you're right in, in the sense that there isn't just one path here. I think that the left we're at a, a, in the nascent stages of some kind of revolutionary moment. It could be, it could just turn into a bunch of fucking rich Brooklyn kids get rich on Patreon and, (laughs) <laughs> that's it um but the right is building their shit too and i think that if the, the more you understand that like you know the middle is dead and just pick it's time to pick a side like we live we're gonna live through you know they're telling us we're gonna live through you know the end of the planet in one way or another like well then let's like stop with this idea that centrism and like some sort of cozy centrism C- cozy centrism brought us here you know what I mean? So like we need something much more radical and like there is like the danger of people falling in all sorts of extreme shit, but we're it's an extreme time. You know what I mean? And I think that young people especially 
you know, if they understood that there was a path that's not just that like fucking ugly incel red pill, I hate women, whatever the fuck the right is trying to drag them into, um, white supremacist shit. Like if they know that there's another world that's just as engaging, just as exciting, just as fucking punk rock and like dangerous and cool. Like, I think that's part of it too. Like, is like, it needs to have, like, we're, we can't just be like the liberals have always gotten off on like, just like being the good guys and like, we're good and we say the right things and we know what's right. And like, I think that we need to be a little more hard edged and like that part of it is like i don't know it's a path to to it's, it's a it's a path to a better world it requires some sort of like engagement in um it's not going to be easy we'll put it that way they it's need to be more be mma that's the thing. yeah that, <laughs> a little bit more mma none of this milk toast yeah. stuff i mean mma to me represents something very honest in a lot of ways as much as it's like a big corporate like fucking there's something the the fact that it's popular represents some desire I think of people to get back to the flesh in one way or the other. I mean, this is really disturbing. I don't know if you know, like the the children these days, like are really into like slime online, like making slime YouTube videos. Do you know this? Like it's a huge world. Yeah, it's part of the ASMR world. There you go. So like this, this my um my niece is like seven years old. She's like really in slime. And she like just sits there and plays with this stuff like and just is mesmerized by like the way it, it feels. It's like a tactile thing, in other words. And she's like, I just love the way it feels. It feels. And she's always on an iPad. She's always on like some sort of electronic device. And then she also really is obsessed with like feeling something, you know, like in her fingers between like the kind of like reality of feeling something. And like, yeah, ASMR is a, a good example, too, of like wanting to like have some sort of like experiential bodily thing. Sense going experience. On. Yeah. And I think that um, the left can answer to that as well. And, and, and I really like the fact that this um, that this podcast is kind of trying to intervene on the MMA world, the world of fighting, because that to me, like. That's another place where it doesn't have to be owned by the right. It seems like there's this weird thing that like if you're into that stuff, you're right wing or you're part of like neo-fascism or something like that, where, you know, I think people, some of people pointed out that like, you know, Lenin, like Vladimir Lenin, like, you know, was a big like wrestler and like, you know, grappler type of guy, very physical, worked out a lot. Um, you know, and some of the biggest like socialist and left projects in history have had like a kind of exercise or physical element to that. So, you know, uh, there there is something, I think, to um, to this weird moment where we're kind of like hyper mediated, but also wanting to like have experiences that bring us back to the sweat and blood and tears of being human. Well, if you look online, especially on Facebook and different message boards, right, talking about that wanting to return to the body and the left. And we talked earlier about different left camps and there could be like a bucket of crabs where they're kind of fighting, right? But out of all the different left camps and groups I've ever joined on Facebook or different message boards, the swoletariat, which is like left-leaning people who just work out and give each other <laughs> yes. workout advice, it is the most peaceful. There's like no fighting there ever, right? Isn't that interesting? And it's huge. It's one of the biggest ones. And then, and then, like the people that are are fighting most viciously are these like kind of like emaciated half people who are like completely disconnected. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if there's something to that, but I I have noticed that too. Like, um, you know, that that swoletariat is a great term. Um, but the the kind of like lifting left or the kind of like, you know, I don't know what that is because the thing is like. There's a history in the 60s of like the left getting really 
falling into some really macho bullshit with violence, right? Where they're like, we're going to fuck it. It's like all these hippies that were like, we're going to get guns. We're going to wage war and all this shit. And like, you understand it, like in the context, actually, like some of it, like the arguments they were making made sense in some weird way. But like, it's, it's also just like, there is a danger to like this kind of like machismo element of it. And I think that this kind of like woke lifting thing, like you're right. You're in the, and it makes me want to like investigate it more. I mean, we had Chad Vigorous on the show. Um, and I know he's one of the kind of big, uh, uh, no pun intended. He's one of the bigger figures in the, uh, um, in the solitary world or like the left lifting or whatever it does. You're, that's kind of, that's fascinating to me that like the, that that would be the kind of like social, uh, um, the like social nastiness of the left would be mitigated by like doing some sort of something physical together. I have a pet theory that some of it is because of uh, becoming more aware of the trans community. Yeah, and I think yeah. part of their transformation is this physical transformation, and a lot of them get into lifting at this point, and so they need a safe space to talk about this and get motivation to go yeah. to the gym without any reactionaries like shitting on them or taking discreet photos of them, making fun of them or whatever, just positivity. And I think physical activity lends itself also to positivity. Yeah. And transformation. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think that a lot of people, uh, there are a lot of people that think that the, that being a leftist just means that we just like support the right program. And then when it comes along, we vote for it and that's it. Where it's like, if you really want to like challenge capitalism and have a revolution and really like make radical change we have to change as human beings like our values what we do every day who we are like and and how do you do that and how do you change yourself how do you transform it's not easy i don't know if you've seen the like zizek uh has like the, those films that are like the um what pervert's guide to cinema or whatever he has that an analysis of fight club which like you know there's a cultural touchstone too like night what they came out like 1999 i feel like that movie was kind of touching on the both the like weird left element of the body and fighting but also the weird right fascist element of it it's kind of a smart movie um in the sense of like it engages in all those kind of ideas that I guess when I say smart, I mean it's prophetic. It like engaged in ideas that became bigger in the culture. But Zizek, he 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 talks about that one scene where, uh, well, it's throughout the movie that Edward Norton, spoiler alert, is like beating himself up and is literally like punching himself, throwing himself against the wall. And Zizek is like, I won't do the impression, but Zizek is like, I love this because like this is like what the real left needs to do. They need it's like transformation is hard. It's physical. It's bloody. It's like you actually have to like go to the edge of who you are and maybe go over that in order to like turn yourself into the kind of person um that can then you know absorb collectivist values and be like be the revolution in other, in other words we need to change radically and i think that's part of my like my vision of politics has has has, has come to a place you know more so over the last many years of like, how do we change radically? And I just like human beings just are so like intransigent and we're so stuck. And like, literally, I know this is sound like weird or whatever, but like literally the only things I can imagine that like eight are like outside agents, like aliens or like psychedelic drugs, some sort of agent that can accelerate a process of transformation on a collective level. And like, I'm not the first one that was thinking this. Timothy Lear was talking about putting acid in the water and all this <laughs> shit like in the 60s. But like, there, we need to accelerate our evolution if we really want to see the kind of world that happens in our lifetime. 
If not, you know, we're just going to sit through and watch some fucking nasty shit happen in our lives. And like, that's the other choice. So we've been talking a lot about tonality, the tone, the themes, right? Yeah. And, and there's been a theme of this podcast that we've been circling. And I've actually been purposely delaying it because it's going to be a big can of worms, right? Fight Club, more the movie than the book. The movie was very anti-capitalist and then it's been co-opted. And you talked about YouTube. Yeah. There was this unhappiness with liberals. And then it's like a coin standing uh, on a side and it could flip either way. And the right kind of through the amount of sheer content that they're creating, they're having it fall this other way. That's right. And we're talking about MMA. Our project is trying to reclaim that or not even reclaim it really, but claim it also as a left thing. And for you now talking about psychedelics, I feel like it's the same thing yeah. where it's a coin standing on a side and it could go either way because historically or not even historically, stereotypically, we just assume that would mean left. But what we've learned through the democratizing of the internet and people uh, on YouTube and podcasts, there's a lot of reactionaries who are also into DMT and psychedelics yep. and stuff. Yep. And you happen to fall one way. I, and I know 10 people who fell the other way. I know people who love DMT and Jordan Peterson. I know people who love <laughs> yes, Alan yeah. Watts totally. and like Stephen Molyneux. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yes. So... How did you fall this way? And why are some of them falling the other way? That's a really good question. And it's really weird because it's like, it's, it's almost odd to talk about politics at all when you talk about psychedelics. Because like when you're actually on psychedelics, like all that shit kind of like falls away and it seems really silly. And it like all of all the politics seems silly, like all of it, left and right. But either way, like you're right to identify, I think psychedelics are one of those coins that are, could fall either way. And they're the, it's it's actually weird to see the right owning it. I didn't expect that. Like I, so I I well look at Whole Foods. I think that's an example too. Totally, There's a lot yeah, of right wingers yeah, yeah. who love that place. I mean, so like studying the '60s and '70s, like there were a lot of people who um, who invested a lot of hope in psychedelics um, and did a lot of experiments, and they and they they did think that that psychedelics were some sort of like evolutionary kind of uh tool that would bring us to but not a lot of them were like specifically left-wing i don't even think of timothy leary as like left-wing i mean it really if like i feel like timothy leary would be almost an intellectual dark web guy in some what about mckenna way. yeah mckenna no though mckenna is and that's i think why mckenna was so appealing to me like timothy leary comes off as like he just fried because i know reactionaries who love mckenna and i don't understand yeah. I don't understand that either because McKenna's whole project is like feminism. Like, like his literal whole thing is about gender. And like, that's what was so appealing to me is like, he like really, really hits this idea about like patriarchy um, and masculinity as being these kinds of like really, really heavy codes that have, that have, that have essentially been written into capitalism and written into history in a way that's like really taken us far afield. And like that, I found all of that really appealing. I mean, uh, the fact that you could listen to Terrence McKenna and like get anything right wing is fucking insane to me. Um, but uh, that being said, like McKenna talks about, about a lot of crazy evolutionary stuff and not necessarily always political. Like he doesn't, he's not like a new dealer or anything like that. Like McKenna was someone who was just like, was so, I, I think that he, he recognized what was wrong. He recognized and he talked about capitalism specifically as what was wrong all the time. But he was not someone who was like, this is the program that we should follow in order to move forward. He just thought like it should be obvious that we should like, in other words, he thought like the fact that we should take care of each other should be an obvious thing. And we like I don't think he had ideas about like what the government is or anything like that. Let me define the kind of right that I'm talking about, too, because yeah. I don't want people to get confused and think we're talking about traditional conservatives or people who are like listening to country Western music or something like that. <laughs> yes. The way I define it is like new metal 
right wing, like people who were into Limp Bizkit and wearing backwards hats. A lot of Trump supporters, right? Totally. Like the pictures that we look at, it feels like I'm back in the 90s of that era, right? Like of the Limp Bizkit fans and like- Who are all like 45 years old now, right? Yeah. And that's the type of right wing I'm talking about, this new metal right who had the well, black yeah. light and- you And know. like the, the yes. And, and I, I mean- there is a line in uh, a documentary uh, about uh, about like Woodstock that's like literally like we the, the guys like we were gonna no it's about Ber- it's about Berkeley it's about the human being but they were like they're like our idea was we were gonna smoke so much weed and get so like high and we we're gonna like dance and have so much good music that we we're gonna end the war in Vietnam right and it's like in other words they just felt like as soon as and he says as soon as everybody gets turned on. We won't have to fight the Vietnam War anymore. We, like, like paradise will dawn as soon as everyone's smoking weed and, and, and doing acid. And you're like, well, that's just like absurd, right? Like, it's it's an insane idea. That's why, I, like, I brought up the you know Leary or whatever the people that are like putting it in the water. It's just like that's not the way things work. Like, these drugs are way more complex, and they don't have any left wing shit embedded in them. It's it's absurd. I know a ton. I knew a ton of like total right wing asshole. MAGA chud dudes that smoke tons of weed and think they're like psychedelic guys, you know, like, I mean, that actually surprised me. Like, I, I, I was probably naive when I first got into psychedelics in terms of thinking that like, oh, like, this is like a, a positive. I, I think of them as like just their tools and we need to direct them. And they and, and I and, that, and that's part of like seeing them within the kind of shamanic tradition, which is like you don't just like putting throwing DMT into like Western capitalist 2000 19 culture is crazy because that's what you're going to get back you know what i mean like people have been using these drugs in different settings and like set and setting is huge with psychedelics obviously and like you know you're setting your intention and having some sort of you don't have like we don't have any like culture like america doesn't have any like you know we stole everything from everybody any culture we have here is just like stolen from another culture so like the how we build like an americanness of like tripping and like you know that that to me is hard like i my like first like thoughts about connecting all this stuff was a book called uh, Breaking Open the Head, which came out in 2002, I think, um, by Daniel Pinchbeck. He's a journalist who did like a ton of psychedelics and like wrote about them from like a journalistic point of view. And he came up, he, he's another guy that like did not go like right wing at all, is very much like saw it as anti-capitalism and, and, and really like kind of like connected things like Burning Man that were happening to like wider kind of cultural like fissures in American society. But so much time has gone by and like even Burning Man is like what? Like all like tech bro, like like there's no fucking left wing to Burning Man, right? Like I would never call Burning Man socialist or anything like that. It's just like rich guys in the desert. It's entrepreneurs. It's like, like libertarian utopia, right? It's Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, it's what they want. Right, right. And like that, I think that's the big thing is like when you say right, wing like psychedelic people i think libertarian that's the right word right is like libertarians are just like older dudes that smoke weed and like they still have the same fucking stupid ass attitudes grateful dead fans yeah like dude john popper from blues traveler this is a 90s shit like i don't know if you know that band you know the blues traveler yeah i remember them a couple of hits he was a libertarian i remember being like young and hearing this guy like he's a libertarian he likes fucking weed guns and he's socially liberal and I was like, that sounds so cool. Like, that sounds so cool. And then, like, I heard him on an interview. And, like, someone asked him, like, what does it mean to be a libertarian? Like, what are you talking about? No government? Are you an anarchist? And he's like, no, 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 no. Like, libertarians are not anarchists. Like, 
we believe that like the government should only do a very minimal thing. And I'll, and the interviewer on MTV or whatever was like, cool, what do you think the government should do, John Bobber? And he's like, well, they should be like the military and the police. And that's it. And I was like, fuck you, libertarian. If that's what libertarianism is, you're a fucking fascist. Like, if that's what it comes down to, that the only thing you can envision the government doing is a military force and a police force, the two things that have been used to, like, attack people of color and poor people, the entire history of the country, you're a fucking piece of shit. And, like, that libertarian, and he's just, like, smoking weed and thinking about, like, we don't really need a government besides the police, man. And, like, that's just... Like, do you not understand what you're saying? You know, what you're saying is you want just like total fucking like a military state barbarism. And you want and what that's going to result in is an even more like white supremacist, unequal situation in the United States. And they don't give a fuck. They're like, because that's the thing with like what? Like the left versus the right is the right doesn't care about equality and the left like is all about equality. And though the right thinks like, the equality isn't even a goal or even a possible thing. They're like, fuck you. Like life is savage. And they, and I think that that kind of like the, the, the conservative, like really nasty view of like what humanity is, is appealing to people like, and especially appealing to like people that are already kind of amped up by the culture to kind of believe that kind of stuff, because the culture isn't going to make you believe that we should all share everything together you know the culture is making you believe like get yours you know and get yours and fuck everybody else i think in the 60s when we had this drug counterculture and with the hippies this is my theory that libertarians and like left real left hippies you couldn't tell them apart they seem the same because i think back then libertarians were different they were more anti-war and criminal justice reform Mm -hmm. they had different values back then whereas maybe the same people now they, their emphasis has changed, right? Maybe the, the stuff they care about now, they cared about back then, but their priority of one to five things they care about, they had criminal justice reform and anti-war right, at the top right. two, whereas now those two things might be at the bottom of their list of 20 things. And now free market or yeah. stay out of my backyard, private property, maybe that's on their top three now. And that yeah. does also seem like libertarians and the left used to be able to get along if those were the priorities criminal justice and anti-war yeah you're right and and i mean there are people that talk a lot about that kind of like left libertarian synergy and like is there a possibility for that i mean i don't know are those like are those um ideologies reconcilable i'm not sure i i think there's like so many other cultural elements at play as well um i will say that like when i there are a lot of the military dudes that I teach are libertarians and identify that way. They, in other words, they are turned off by the government um, because of their experience, um, basically having a shitty job for the government in the military. And they're they're not like hyper patriotic dudes. They're like very like individualistic. They ride motorcycles, have big trucks, have like NRA stickers on the back of their cars. And they're like, really like, fuck you, leave me alone. Let me have my guns. And like, it's, it's weird because when I talk to them, we have a lot in common. Like we both, we, we hate when I, when I say we have a lot in common, we, we all hate the ruling class. Like we all, like the, all those, all those military men and women are from the bottom of American society and they have the same fucking attitude that I do. But I, mine is more, you know, filtered through graduate school and fucking reading academic books. But theirs is like a very organic sense of justice. And a very organic sense, a very defensive kind of posture of like the individual, which like, I think 
like, you know, if you're a certain type of person, you know, reacting to your poverty, you know, you're going to react to it in different ways. And like, you know, th these guys react to it in, in anger and it filters into their libertarian vision where it's like, what, you want to like build the government up, the same government that like fucked me over and like sent me to the Middle East for no reason? No, like I don't want to make that government bigger and I don't want to give that government power. Leave me the fuck alone. Um, and that part of it is like, how do we bridge that? How do we bring those guys to a left um, and, 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 and bring them to, you know, a different position that, that, that part is tricky. And I should say, and I don't really talk to them about everything. So I don't hear like their racial views, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Like sometimes I do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the bottom line is like, uh, it gets back to like, and this is part of like my military thing is that like people in the American military feel very often like separated from the rest of American society. And that, and, and, and that can be like an alienation and anger that doesn't make them really want to you know participate in collectivist projects or political projects that being said the other side of this like you know i gotta mention my guys like on the hell of a way to die podcast um and eyes left pod uh and there are a bunch of others that are veterans um that are doing left-wing stuff and like socialist podcasts and like building a military left which is what i wrote about in my book too so it's like that it it's not automatic. The military experience doesn't drag you to the right, but I think it's just like you're saying, it's one of those coins, right? Where it can like go one way or the other. Almost all the military people that I talk to recognize that the military is like a socialist institution. That's what I was going to bring up because the closest thing we have in this country to communism is the military, right? right? Yes. So there's something that they want. Yes, they get that and they want it to work better. Yeah. And so it's kind of like that to me, that's the conversation. That's where you can like kind of make a make a bridge where you're like okay you see how the military works if you had it up to, if it were up to you how would you make it better how would you make the military better and all of a sudden they're fucking socialists because they're talking like well would you want that then the healthcare that you get should we take that program and make it so that everybody can get it and they're like yeah totally that makes sense and you're like you're a socialist i just left pilled you you know what i mean and it's like that kind of thing is not hard to do like a lot of there are populations in America and you're uh, we're trying to identify them. Right. There are populations in America that are like ripe for radicalization into fucking nasty shit. But they're also those same people can be brought to the other side um, once they're over there, once they're Nazis, though, and they're like 50 year old engaged Nazi dudes. I think we're done with them. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like, I think those are garbage human beings and they're done. Like, I, I mean, yeah, sure. They can have like. There's always people that are born again, but yeah. shit's complicated, dude. We have fucking like, I mean, I'm one of those people that thinks that like Trump is unleashed, like Nazism in America. Um, and, you know, it can it's it's the it's our history. We don't have to imagine what would happen like if like people started killing people in the street. Like I just read this about lynching, like lynching went on for a long time in America. But just one statistic that will blow people's mind. 1910. 1910 had 67 lynchings in 1910. So uh, imagine if today a group of white people on the street just grabbed a black guy and like ripped him apart in a big crowd and everyone fucking filmed it and no one went to jail for it. And the body was mutilated on the street and it was a fun party. Imagine if that took place 67 times this just this year. How would we fucking feel? That was 1910. And that was one of the lowest years of, you know, in, in lynchings. So it's like, 
you know, the history of like white people tearing people apart in this country, literally on the street, it's there. We don't have to wonder about what would happen if Nazis did this. It's in our history. It's happening already. Fucking dudes are already fucking going into churches and synagogues and shooting people. I mean, we're living in under attack from like an ideology that is not one place. It's not one building that you go to and there's the Nazis, but like something is happening on the internet. Something is happening in our culture that is radicalizing mostly men, mostly young men, but most almost all men into killing people and specifically killing the same people that have always been killed, right? They're not killing fucking, they're not going to, you know, fucking, you know, Facebook and killing all the CEOs. They're going to like, public places they're attacking the working class they're attacking people of color they're attacking us you know and like that part of it is just horrifying and something that we need to intervene on and 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 i'm not talking about like gun control i'm talking about that coin i like that i keep bringing back that metaphor but like that coin that's resting on its side you know can fall into more of that or how do we win those minds over and like you know i don't want to say that i'm like a propagandist i don't think that's my role really it's more about like kind of just offering offering a space where people can come and realize that like, you know, there's another side to that coin. There's another way that can fall. Um, and I think that's what you guys are doing here too. So it's really solid project. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of like, uh, I really like the book, The Catching the Rye. There's people who don't like it. And there's also people who are very, in the past, like desperate people who've done very bad things who like that book. And how does it have such diversity of people liking it? I think the common thing is we all understand like loneliness and alienation. Yes. So just because I choose to be more empathetic with it and want to help others and be charitable, maybe somebody else doesn't, but that doesn't mean we both don't share some kind of feeling together. And I think that's that, that thing that you're talking about where a lot of people who could go either way, they're feeling something, or maybe it's the lack of something, maybe it's a void or a community. And that's the thing, right? There's this hatred of collectivism and community, but at the same time, every one of these people, even the ones who do really bad things, that's what they were lacking. And that's what they'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, They're all loners, right? All of them are people that they're, they're, none of these people that do mass shootings are people that are like, had like, everyone would say had healthy social lives where they had lots of friends and like, they're fam- it's always alienated people and like that we live in in an alienated society i mean wouldn't i mean would you agree that like the internet like has alienated us and set us apart from each other in ways and like maybe increase the feeling that like that people are able to see each other as not human or not real even i mean it's like i don't know i talked to some of my students who say they game so much that then that they do so much gaming that when they walk into the street they kind of like have to like adjust and recognize they call it irl right in real life that means then that i'm now in real life what were you in before right right it's it's troubling and it's it's something that i think that you know we're gonna have to come to terms with one way or one way or another this alienation you're talking about and it is an alienation that i think is intrinsic to capitalism i think that the alienation has always been there i think that the 90s was before the internet really and the whole discourse was about alienation entirely right i mean i was alienated from like the the world of like the corporate world has been a sterile nasty inhuman place for a long time and that's what most of the jobs are so it's like you know that that kind of um disconnect is something that's that the the internet seems like it accelerates that impulse and we're going to have to come to terms with like uh i i keep wondering if there's going to be like a generation that like 
just doesn't do this stuff, or like, you know, spends their time staring in each other's eyes kind of thing. And I think there's a desire for that. But there's also I've talked to my students about it. And they say, well, yeah, but like, realistically, I can't like give up, like, get off social media, like all that stuff is like how I get jobs, how I navigate the world. Like, so I have to do this stuff. Like I'm, I'm a pri- like I'm imprisoned to a machine that only increases my alienation. And like that, that is something that I think is, 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 you know, part of what we're seeing in, in violence and in the kind of larger kind of ugliness of the culture is not seeing each other as human beings. And, you know, it's, I don't say it's, it's not, it's not the phones, it's not the internet, but it is accelerating because we laid our culture right onto all that stuff. You know, I was so much utopic thinking about, um, the internet in the early years of Steve jobs, all those guys were like, this is going to revolutionize the world. They came from the sixties. They were guys that did acid. I mean, iPhone, the iPhone is literally like a creation of a guy that like was on acid and saw like, what if we all had devices that like we could touch and like move through information and now we're living in that world. Like we're living in the dream of like the weird 60s radical counterculture entrepreneurs. And like, what has it got? What has what it brought to us? It's brought us like an alienated world, a world that's got all the same problems that we used to have, all the same violence that we used to have. We still got war. Trump is president. Like this is like, oh, we can be done with the idea that this uh, was a utopic technology. The technology is the technology. That's it. Like it's, it's a tool and it's a tools, like all tools, they reveal something about us we made it for a reason and it's revealing some element and i think it's time to really investigate what the internet and social media in particular is is kind of doing to us and how we create something and create a template that like brings us to something more productive and positive i don't know i think that's why a lot of young people are listening to podcasts because even though it is technology it is still radio so they put their earbuds on and just go for a walk i find a lot of uh young people when I engage with them and talk to them about my podcast or their podcast listening habits, right? The Gen X and older, they're listening in their car. It's all on the way to their corporate jobs. Uh, but a yeah. lot of the younger ones, they're doing it while they're mowing the lawn or doing chores or outside walking or something like that. So I'm having hope that maybe with the younger ones that it is uh, kind of an escape away from you can't escape technology, but like maybe less. Yeah, no, technology. you're right. I mean, it's kind of lo-fi. You know what I mean? It's kind. Of, it's back to like radio. You're right. Like it's kind of like that. The desire. It's also the desire to hear human voices and like you know hear conversations and that. That to me is a positive development. It's another one of those coins that we can like control which way it goes. And yeah, I am not a luddite or anti-tech guy in the sense of like you know phones are bad we're gonna get rid of them i think i'm more of like a story in the sense of like why is this happening and where is it gonna go from here and also the taste in podcasts i think is different right i think the older crowd they're listening to like npr podcasts the npr family of podcasts and this is where you come in i think a lot of the younger people they don't want the mass media one they want the independent stuff and i think a lot of them do want history so it's kind of anachronistic. And there's another example of that liberal thing you're talking about with NPR, right? I, I like I thought you know, NPR is liberal. I I I knew that, and I thought, well, that means it's good. And then there was this guy. It was actually the guy that gave me the Terrence McKenna tapes. This like really smart dude that I met at a restaurant for just like a few months, and like he like he totally like left pilled me or whatever. He gave me this tape. But like <laughs> one of the things he said, I remember I said like, oh, I heard this thing on NPR today, and I thought that he would be like, oh, cool, he's left wing too or something. But in Anyway, his response was, you listen to NPR? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is just the one this morning. And he's like, oh, you mean like national propaganda radio? And I was like, what? 
like again i was like what the fuck is he talking about propaganda is he a right winger is he like some sort of like conservative that rush limbaugh that thinks npr is marxist propaganda or something no he's like no that's like liberal shit and i was like and and i realized that he was coming at it from the left i think that's the main thing is that understand that you can hate liberals but hating them like attacking them from the left that's the thing i do in class a lot and that students never fucking understand is i say okay Barack Obama says he wants to uh, use drones uh, to to do bombings in the Middle East because it'll be more precise in killing our enemies. Um, attack him from the right and attack him from the left. And they're like, uh, over that policy. Attack him from the right and attack him from the left over that policy. And none of them can do that, dude. Like, say, like, why Obama is wrong from from the right. They don't even know what I'm talking about. Like, what would a right-wing person say about that? They'd say, fucking drones is bullshit. It should be like fucking just carpet bombing that shit. We should be like sending troops, whatever. The right-wing would be much more. And the left-wing person would say, like, what are we drone bombing people in the Middle East for? You know what I mean? Like, what the fuck? And so, like, understanding you can attack Obama, that's another thing. Like, many think, like, when I attack Obama in class, they think I'm a fucking racist. Like, oh, this guy must be like some fucking, like, Donald Trump right-wing racist because I'm like, Obama fucking sucks. But you're like, no, dude. You got to get to the Obama sucks place. I think that it's absolutely critical for liberals, left people who want progressive policies to understand how bad Obama was and move past that. And that part of it is tricky because we've got so much layers of cultural shit on that. Yeah. Yeah. This is why centrism doesn't work. Yeah. Because if you just say, oh, well, he was good because he was able to talk to. No, you have to be able to call out bad things for what they are. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And like have uh, have values to me, uh, like to me, I mean, this is a whole other episode, but like Obama really like wasted, like really like kind of set us back a lot by like basically propping up liberalism as something that is a viable way to move forward um, and, and, and keeping that and connecting it to um, connecting it to race and, and connecting it to class in really cynical ways. Like, I, I just feel like his like change you can believe in is like one of the most like cynical, brilliant, nasty phrases, camp presidential campaigns in American history, because he was playing on the idea that people felt ripped off, right? He was playing on the idea that like, yeah, we, we it's a, a real idea that like, we have never had an agent of change that you could actually believe. And we couldn't believe him either. Right. Like and, and so like he came in there and he was a phony, just like all the others, a servant of capital um, and a, a person who spent like eight years attacking the American underclass. And like that part of it is something that young people need to understand. And it's like, don't go to the right to attack Obama, attack him from the left, see him as inadequate to creating the kind of world that would be fair, that would be right. All the things you want, you know, Um and that, that's that's tricky because there's so much like people love Obama, dude. Like Joe Biden is fucking popular now entirely because he was Obama's vice president. Like there's no policy thing that's making Biden popular. It's just people. So I think, right. They're just associating with Obama. They're like, yeah, he was Obama's bestie. So he must be cool. OK. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's like a bait and switch that happened where it's like. We disassociated race from egalitarianism yeah. and associated instead with like war and fighting these bad countries and capitalism. Mm -hmm. But race should always be part of like more of egalitarian socialism, not this other thing. And that's that's that clever. But right. it's like a weird thing where it does sound hopeful. And but it is also in a it's way woke, woke imperialism. Yeah. Right. Where we're like, dude, the people who run the drones are all people of color and transgender. 
And you're like, wait a second. Yeah. Like, okay, that's cool that we have representation for people that have been fucking marginalized and left out. We need that. But like, like through war, like through killing, like it, 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 it's a constant joke on Twitter, right? About like, we need more like woman prison guards and like all this kind of shit. But it's like that kind of like um, position, the positioning of like, um, of race and gender and all those things as, as kind of covers for just increased neoliberal neoliberalism is both very cynical and troubling on their part. And it works and it's really hard to attack because what am I going to say about that kind of stuff when they, you know, I mean, they say like the, for the first time in history, all three of the leaders in the CIA are women. And it's like, okay, they torture people. And like, what's this fucking CIA do, dude? Like, like, why aren't we talking about that? And like, here, there's a another way where like, attack it from the left, attack it from the right, because the right's gonna be like, oh, look, this is just bullshit. Like, women, like, they're trying to just like enforce their fucking like lesbian um, agenda on us or something like that. Whereas the left would say, wait, what? Why are we talking about like how good it is that women are in these positions without talking about what these positions are, what the structure of this, what the structure and purpose of this organization is? Like that's the conversation we need to be having. Is like you know, apart from all the like representation issues, like what is the whole thing about? And like that's horror. And that part is really, again, really tricky to have because I'm like sitting here being a white guy, being like, it doesn't matter that there's a person of color in that position, and it makes me look like an asshole that doesn't care about people of color or women or whatever having a spot at the table. And that's hard. I think hard to navigate. Yeah. You recently had a guest where you talked about money and wealth and how the conversation of, well, this partner had to dip into her savings and people forgot or the left completely missed the point of why the fuck does she have so much money set aside? Yeah. How is she able to accrue this wealth? Why isn't that the main conversation? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it was just about like um, people have like people that are navigating some of these worlds are like much more like especially the media world, like are much wealthier than they're than they're le- than they're leading us to believe. And that, that that part of it is something that I think I understood more when living in Brooklyn, working with media folk and and going to graduate school. I mean, there's a class element to that. And like the to, to me, like even I went to the CUNY Graduate Center, which is like a public school known uh, for like a lot of radicals and anarchists and stuff like that. But there were still like people that, you know, their father went to Cornell or went to Harvard. Or their, their mom's a professor at Yale, whatever. That to me was wealth. That to me was like, you know, stuff that I didn't really get. Of like, why are they able to get this job? How do they get that job at the New Yorker? Like, and, and it's like, well, they got that job at the New Yorker not by like applying on fucking monster.com. They like got that job because of social connections and that social capital element of it. Well, same thing with Hollywood, right? You coming down to Hollywood. Oh, God. Yeah, exactly. I didn't understand social capital, even though I should have. Like people like make jokes about that all the time. That like Hollywood is entirely about like who, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I really thought but that was part of the narrative of the 90s, right? Was Quentin Tarantino was just some like video store clerk. They don't tell you, though, like that he had to navigate capital, right? Like in order to like do anything in the society, like a big project, you need capital. Like people say, like, go open a restaurant. You go open a restaurant. Okay, I am like six figures in student loan debt, right? So how do I go open a restaurant? Uh, I need mm, uh, for for the shittiest restaurant you could like. I need at least a hundred thousand dollars to start. I would guess, right? Like a million if you want to do a nicer restaurant. Where do you get that? You have to know someone who can give that to you. And like, so that's how wealth has just been concentrated more and more. You know, it's like you're talking about like people having 
uh, um, you know, all this money that you don't know about, like that's because there, it's like, there are not that many families that have all that wealth. And it's just been passed around again and again, like the real kind of like property wealth of this country is just set. So like that idea of like, I'm going to be the video store clerk and go be a director in Hollywood. You know, I, I think I probably swallowed the American dream ideology, the bootstrapping American dream. I was like, oh, I'll just go down to Hollywood and I'll be so talented that I'll just like somehow make it. It was like, dude, you and millions of others are coming to this town to try and be here. And now it's like what Netflix comedy specials. And I mean, the world is different now uh, because it's all like these streaming services. Like I so I work at Emerson College on Sunset Boulevard and it's always like uh netflix is there hulu is there like the um uh amazon is there millions of square footage of studio space and it's just like again like this race of like people that just want to like give me a show give me a show give me a show give me a show and that part of it is very much a, a kind of you know analog for the rest of capitalism right which is like we're all desperately thinking we're going to be the one to like make it somehow and the statistics aren't very promising when it comes to that, right? Like most people, if you're born on the bottom and you have nothing, you're probably going to end up that way. And that's going to be your whole life. And that to me is apart from the fact that we burnt the planet and destroyed all that, the fact that capitalism eats your whole life and eats, I mean, I watched my dad, I think that's part of it too, the personal element of it. I watched my dad work for the phone company like 14 hours a day, his whole life. It's like, for what? They fucked him over. They took his retirement. He lost it all in the stock market. They talked him into putting it into stocks, his retirement. He lost it all in the dot-com crash. He had to come back to work with like half the wages, no benefits. He got his life stolen by capitalism. It's like, my dad's like this brilliant guy. And I'm like, who could he have been? Like, what kind of, what person could he have been if he didn't have to get up at five in the morning every single fucking day of his life and go do bullshit for the phone company just so he can pay his bills. Who would he have been? It's like, I don't know. And, and then I blow that up and I'm like, that's every one of us. We don't know who we are because we spend the majority of our time in a desperate scramble to try and get money to survive. And like, it's not right. It's fucking actually really nightmarish. And when you think about the fact that there's a ruling class that doesn't have to do that and like the people that like get to like uh become get into wingsuit base jumping or get into like you know whatever they're into and spend their lives discovering themselves it's not fair that only five families get to do that you know what i mean it should be all of us all of us should be able to spend our lives finding out who we are and what we are and, and you know discovering that mystery and instead we're distracted and kept like in this position of, of making people, other people rich um, so that we can, you know, eat. And now we're getting to a position where it's not even that, right? Where you're like, it's even, they've, 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 they've clamped that down so hard that now it's like, you can spend your life working and still not even survive and have enough money to pay rent. You can spend your life working a full-time job and live in your parents' house. And it's like, what's going to happen when all those parents' houses aren't there anymore? You know what I mean? Because young people aren't buying houses. They, are, they just aren't. Everyone's renting. I'm fucking renting, dude. I'm 40 and I'm renting. I'm like, when will I buy a house? Probably never, dude. And so it's like, well, if I had kids and I don't, but if I did, like, and my friends that have kids, are they're not going to, how would they live with me in other words, right? Like the wealth is just getting squandered, like generationally. We're in like a very shitty position. And like, to me, it's like, it's been time to push back 
uh, against that forever. And my show, Nostalgia Trap, is in part about how people have pushed back against it for hundreds of years. But we have tools, you know, and we have, we, to me, I, someone on my show the other day said, it doesn't look good. The situation is bleak. The future looks like the bad guys are going to win. But I want to at least go down swinging. And I think that brings it back to the fighting, you know, a little bit. I want to go down swinging. I want to fucking show that we fought. And I want it for the historical record to reflect that there were people on earth that said, fuck this. That not only said like, oh, maybe capitalism could be a little more fair and maybe I should get like, you know, 10 more bucks in my paycheck. No, there were people that were visionaries that had a much more radical vision of what we could be as human beings uh, apart from that. And again, I'm not the kind of person that like says, this is what it is. This is where we should go in the future. But I know we can do better than this. I mean, it, it seems like the, the evidence shows us that humanity can is capable of wonderful things. So how do we... How do we f- take those wonderful things and blow them up and make them like more the template of reality instead of this kind of nightmarish capitalist system? And that's the that's the 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 project, I guess, for all of us. Yeah, I think right now we are in this boom of leftist, socialist, anti-capitalist uh, media network, not just in podcasting, but on also on YouTube. Totally. And there's an initiative that I was just reading about where. The YouTubers with bigger influences are going to try to help more of the smaller ones, especially the ones who are people of color or marginalized people. Good. So there is that happening and everybody's having their niche, right? Like, yeah, there was nobody in our niche. So we're like, there's 50 of us out there who like MMA and left wing stuff. Dude, we're going to take that. We're going to. I guarantee you there's more than 50. (laughs) I guarantee you there's more than 50. I think that, you know, that solitary thing is not a small thing. I think there are. And I think there are like, think about just how many people are into fucking working out um, uh, and fighting and shit like that. That culture. There are tons. And that's that coin. You know, you're you're ready to flip it. When we think about unions and uh, employees banding together, our biggest example that people don't talk about is sports. Yeah. Totally. And what's the sport that doesn't have it yet? It's MMA is the only major sport that doesn't have it. By default, that makes MMA a leftist project. Yeah, totally. That's great. Because that's the canvas that we have to claim. And sports is a really great. Sports is a great place to talk about politics and to like engage in issues of labor and engage of issues. And you have a commonality. Yeah, yeah. And hey, it's teamwork, right? And like there uh, there are and and that kind of physicality and like there it's also just like culturally so popular. Like you got to engage sports. I think for a long time, there's a stereotype of like leftists who are like, I don't like sports and I just want to like study and like, like uh, that nerd, I kind of like, I, you know, I have a sympathy for that nerd. Like, um, but at the same time, I also realize that if we want to like, kind of like build something that really kind of like answers the whole like rich experience of being human, we need to like go in these directions, you know, and like kind of let's, let's play, let's build the left, let's build it into like, cause again, I don't think it needs to be one thing. We, we, no one, not every leftist has to get into fighting, working out. It's like, that's part of it. And you guys are over here doing that. And we're like interacting and drawing lessons from you. And you guys are drawing lessons from us. And we're over here doing our like leftist knitting circle where we're really into like, like making clothes. And we're like trying to figure out new ways of like making clothes in like a kind of like leftist, collectivist, kind of like communal, um, you know, beautiful way, right? And there's that element of it. And you got people that are doing the food politics and farming and shit like that. In other words, this project is the project of building an entirely new world. So let's all like pick your p 
piece of it. And I, I think you guys are making a great wager, like that, 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 that this, like that this is a important piece of the project and an important part of like uh, building the left. There's something you just said real quickly, but I want to highlight it, which is you said less play. And I think because things are so dire, we forgot as leftists how to play. Yeah, we should play. We're so serious. But you think about it, left humanities. Humanities is all about being more human. Yes. Part of that is playing yes. and playfulness and playing with your hands and playing the dirt. And I think that's an element like working out or play fighting or sports. When you're on a team, you're all comrades. <laughs> totally. So we forgot this playing aspect. But what I wanted to bring this back to was then in your part of the world, what you're doing because we have so many other media creators who are telling you what's happening now, currently, right, right. topical. But I think the historical ones like you, and I don't think there are that many yet, but, but the ones that are doing it, the ones that are putting up the good fight, because when you just talk about current topical things, it's very easy to get depressed and demoralized. Yes. But when you go into history, there are things that inspire you. You're like, oh, look at these badasses, and they were doing this. Oh, totally. And things were even more bleak sounding back then, and they did that. And I think that's the important aspect of history. And that's, I hope, is an aspect that you never forget. Or that if you didn't know that's what you were covering, that is something that you do. Yeah, I'm glad you say that because it's like when you put these podcasts out, you don't, I don't get a whole lot of feedback. Like, I don't know what people, I know that people like the show. I know that we've got like a lot of people listening and, and, and supporting the show on Patreon, et cetera. But I'm always like, what do they like about the show? So it's good, it's good to hear you uh, say that because I think it really is back to that Howard Zinn element, which is like, you know, for me, it was reading and it's there's a passage in Howard Zinn and I think that, that gets everybody. I think it's from Frederick Douglass talking about the Fourth of July. And he's like he and it's just, you know, it's a speech from Frederick Douglass where he's just like, you know, fuck your Fourth of July and fuck your whole country. And like you, you guys are just a bunch of fucking racist assholes. And he says it in a much more beautiful way than I just put it. <laughs> but like, but yeah, that's a paraphrase. But like either way, reading that, I was like, yes, holy shit. Like a fucking dude from slavery stood up while slavery was happening and told all these white people, fuck off. And told them like what fucking animals and barbarians they were to their faces. And I was like, that's incredible. Why didn't anyone ever, like, again, I, I didn't get that book till after I got out of college and I was a history major. So like, what was what went wrong there? You know what I mean? That I didn't have that moment where you're like, holy fucking shit, that's amazing. And like that kind of getting back to that, um, I think, you know, what you've identified is is what we do try to do on the Nostalgia Trap um, is, is go, when we, Go back to history. We showed them that, like, look, this wasn't like some funny, weird kind of cool thing that happened in the past. Like these people were engaged in a bloody battle that it, and they were in, as enraged as you are about the shit that's going on. And yeah, they were in positions that were even more bleak and like impossible than we are. I mean, we're sitting here in an air conditioned room like Frederick Douglass, like his <laughs> life was a lot harder than this. Right. And like he was able to like have a humanity about him not fall into despair, not fucking get red pilled and turn into an asshole that hates women and wants to shoot people. <laughs> but like instead, like actually got like what what like the 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 fact that you could go through, through something that traumatic and come out like that exemplary of a human being to others. And I think that's part of it too. There's a quote from McKenna again to go back to Terrence McKenna where he says like I'll get it wrong, but he basically says like, you know, the goal of of all of this is like how do we how do we like embrace the paradox of being human with all the different things we want, um, but also be able to be exemplary to other people and be a model of like how to be to other people? And I found that really appealing. Like, I think that idea of like embodying the goodness in some ways, and that doesn't mean like being, uh, I don't mean like in a liberal way of like, I'm a goody two shoes and I'm morally perfect. It's not about that. 
It's about presenting yourself as the imperfect human you are and telling people that it's okay to be imperfect, but we move forward anyway, and we can be good and we can try to be good. And the striving for that is what matters. Like all of that, like we can be a hand, you know, to reach out to people that are in despair, because I do think if there's anything that's indicated by the fact that we have a fucking mass shooting in this country every fucking 10 seconds, it's that there is a profound, profound amount of, of, of people in pain in this country in one way or another. And it's sad and they're wrecked. And like, we need to answer that. And because that is the coin too, right? Is that, that, that the poison, it's very easy to fall into poison when you feel like shit and this country feels like shit right now. And so it's like, how do we, bring them to something better? How do you take people that are depressed, alien? I mean, this is on the left, right? They talk a lot about mental, like mental illness on the left, that people on the left, and I understand it, millennials, et cetera, Gen Z, they're like people that are depressed. And it's like, I totally get that. Like when I was, cause I, when I was unemployed after college and I was like doing nothing and like my, I was asking my roommate to cover the rent because I didn't get the temp job that I thought I was going to get. And I'm waiting now for like, I was going to payday, like check cashing places in the Valley 15 years ago. I was going to those places and like, I was fucking dirt poor and it was very hard to have any kind of positive view of humanity or myself. I hated myself. I hated others. Um, and I think that that makes you a very, you know, vulnerable to ideology when you're in that state and there are more people in that state now than ever before. So, you know, I'm lucky in that I was able to somehow maintain my humanity through the experience of poverty, but it's not easy. And like that part of it, I think is something we need to talk about too. You know, it's like that alienation and darkness is there and we need to make people feel better. And, and, and that's, tricky you know there are a lot of podcasts that are just like dark bitter ironic fuck you podcasts and it's like that's fun i get it but like you know there's an opportunity here to like heal ourselves yeah, yeah. and like we need to heal as a as a culture we're a fucked up sick culture i mean <laughs> we really are dude like it's bad and like how do we heal there's 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 your fucking podcast style how do we how heal, do we right? heal it sounds so touchy-feely but dude we need that if we don't heal, you get a Jordan Peterson. Yeah, exactly. Look how wrecked that guy is. Like you look at Jordan Peterson, and you're like, that man is sick inside. Yeah, you can just yeah. tell, you, you know, like that's that, that Well, guy. he's talked about his depression too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, dude, it's, uh, to me, like it doesn't, I've been in academia for like 15 years. I've met a lot of guys like Jordan Peterson. <laughs> like I've met a lot of guys that have that personality. There are these little wormy guys that like have, um, a kind of confidence about them, but is, is like kind of their confidence is belied by the fact that they appear un, unwell, you know, and they like feel like they're a lot of their politics and a lot of everything they say is filtered through their unhappiness and like their kind of personal alienation once again, right? The Academy created them. Right, exactly. <laughs> um, but that, that part of it is, is yeah, we... That, it's 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 something that again comes back to what you guys are doing which is like bringing it back to like our humanity and like kind of seeing that as a critical a critical part of understanding how the left moves um and it's not just a green new deal but like i don't know something that we need a new, a new deal for our minds and that's uh that's tricky too yeah it's a two-front thing where there's policies but also the culture has yeah. to heal and i think that's what all of us are trying to do so i think this is a good way to end things on this note but to recap what I've gained from this is that if you're ever going to go down the psychedelic 
uh, journey, first read Howard Zinn and Noam Chomsky first. That's, that's what <laughs> Beautiful. I got. Yeah. Lay, lay the base <laughs> before you go into the weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. You got to do it right. There's a lot of ways <laughs> to do it wrong. That's great. But with that said, where can people find you? Um, so I'm at nostalgiatrap.com um, and uh, I'm on Twitter a lot. So at David L. Parsons and at Nostalgia Trap. Those are both pretty active accounts. Um, and come come check out our show. Come check out the Patreon, etc. Thank you. Thanks for having me on, dude. All right. Thank you. Thank you.